Hello, 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 hello. It's Chris Snowden here again from the Institute of Economic Affairs, and you're watching the Swift Half with Snowden, uh, another episode of the fortnightly half hour chat show, half hour, hence Swift Half. Uh, we invented and patented the rights to half hour television programs. We think they're the perfect length, and we're amazed no one's thought of it before. This week, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to uh, welcome onto the show Dr. Margaret McCartney. Um, she is not a, uh, she hasn't got a PhD. She's one of those medical doctors, um, but it does mean that she is licensed to practice medicine. And um, she's with us right now. Margaret, hello. Hello, Christopher. Hi. Now, Margaret, you hold me up on a tweet last week which I sent out, and this wasn't a fully-fledged think tank idea. It was just something off the top of my head. It did it did go quite, it did go down quite well, I have to say, with a lot of people on Twitter. I said, general practice should be replaced by walk-in centres. GPs were a good idea once upon a time, but most of them work part-time. They don't do home visits, and they won't work weekends. They're only middlemen. Anyway, get rid of them. What's wrong with that? <laughs> well, my reply to you, I think, was just like Christopher, you know, because I, I, it's really interesting about discussing ideas and where it's best to be done, because Twitter can be quite useful for quite a lot of stuff. But, you know, I, I just wonder how many people actually get better informed by stuff on Twitter, whether sometimes it's better to take things into a different place and try and talk about them, which is what I hope what I hope to try and do here. So I have massive conflict of interest, of course, I'm a GP, you know, so um, uh, so that's my, my biggest um, conflict of interest. Although I, I did say years ago that if general practice was ever proven to be harmful, I would go and do something else quite happily. So I'm still up for that challenge, still hoping for a second career. So um, can I tell you about my, my story? Is that okay? Please do. So, um, so when I was a, a medical student, I remember going with a GP um, for an attachment for a few weeks and going out with him and he would do a morning clinic and then he would go home for lunch, feed the dog, see his wife, and then he would do some home visits on the way and then he would do an afternoon surgery that would go into early evening and then he would go home, do some out of hours, there would be a driver to take you around and do some out of hours, you know, seeing some patients that really couldn't travel in to, um, to, to be seen in a, in a centre in the practice. And it was very sustainable it felt very doable it was a nice job it was attractive you knew the patients the patients knew you there was no no real complaints you know everything seemed to be kind of shuffling along reasonably well and then when I came to do general practice this is um 23 years ago as a trainee it was a bit different so there was quite intense morning and afternoon sessions house calls would be kind of at lunchtime late morning but there would always be time for coffee. We'd always manage to sit down and discuss cases, who was doing what, you know, does the receptionist need to be replaced? Do we need to um, replace the roof tiles around the back? You know, all the stuff that goes along with a small business. And it was a kind of corner shop model. You know, it was a corner shop and you had your regular customers, you knew them, they knew you. It was, it worked fairly well. And then things started to change. It seemed to ramp up. There become it became just increasing demand on, on appointments and an increasing demand out of hours as well. So out of hours used to be manageable. You know, it used to be that you you could deal. I remember being on call on Saturdays, and I would be the only on call doctor for a practice of I think something like fifteen thousand patients. I was on my own. I remember being very heavily pregnant and on my own, thinking if I get murdered, <laughs> and no one will know where I've been or where I'm going. So it was very, you know, you just you were just on your own. You just dealt with it, but you had quite a lot of autonomy about how you did it and then out of hours really started to change things really ramped up more than was safe more than you can deal with so it became very um very slick practices would share their on-call rotas with other practices you would be expected to be there in the center all the time working hard rather than being on call from home and having interruptions from time to time 
So it really changed. And there was a lot of work from hospitals was moved out into the practices because they realised that we could do a lot of things, but the funding didn't always follow. And then I think there became just this kind of gradual decline, stroke stress, stroke dissatisfaction in lots of areas that has just accelerated and accelerated and accelerated. So what you've got now is GPs who are, I think many are very distressed because they can't do the job that they want to do and that they're trained to do. You get patients who are distressed because they want to go and see the doctor and they can't get to do that. And you get the kind of walk-in centres, which are the quick fixes, which work brilliantly if you're someone that is not seriously ill, doesn't have a long-term condition, doesn't really need to see a doctor. You could see a pharmacist, you could see a nurse, you could see a paramedic, you know, not things that are, are going to be causing you undue long-term issues. So it can work really well for that. If you've got a chronic condition, if you've got complicated medical problems that are interwoven with each other, if you've got um, if if you've got kind of lots of the chronic multiplicities that we get, and we know that they affect people who are worse off earlier and they live less long with lower quality health lives, that becomes increasingly difficult to sustain. And you can't do it in a ten minute, fifteen minute GP appointment well either. You need all the resources with you. So. It, just becomes more and more and more impossible so that's where we're basically at but the thank you for that but the the objection i guess to the walk-in centers clinics whatever you call them is that you know you're going to see somebody different every time you're going to have to explain your whole medical history and so on but i find and a lot of people find that you have to do that anyway when you go to the gp yeah. because the idea of having a family doctor who you see yeah. is, is is dead and gone i think i'm right in saying most gps now well, work part-time they seem well, to move around all the time you get them leaving coming back as locums on twice yeah. as much money so yeah, let, 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 me, let, me tell, let me tell you about that. So now you're absolutely right. So continuity of care, there's lots of evidence that says it's associated with cheaper and better quality care. So that's like really important. GPs like it, patients like it. So it's one of those things that keeps GPs in practice. They feel less stressed, I think, in general, when they have patients that they know because they're not coming to try to make, you know, 100 decisions at a time that they're making sort of two or three quality decisions with someone that you know. So you're absolutely right. And that has been declining and there's good evidence to say it's been declining and declining. Well, why is that? Well, when you talk about part-time, so I'm meant to be half-time, two and a half days a week. So that takes me about 32, 33 hours, plus all my paperwork at home. Like the days that I've been in general practice, my head is, you know, full. I'm at my full decision-making capacity. I've been making decisions quickly, all day, you know, with little coffee in my system sometimes, you know, it, it is really, really difficult to sustain. And so a lot of GPs are coming in and are thinking, okay, I would quite like to do some general practice, but actually that is really stressful and the pay is crap. And if I go and work for a private provider who are offering me sessions from home with a gym and with free indemnity and with free, you know, free GMC fees paid, all your professional expenses done, and it's less um, stressful and it's generally nicer because I have more time with patients and not put under undue pressure to you know do all the house calls and all the prescription requests and phone back social work and organize a letter for the housing department for this person that needs a house and won't be given it unless you get a letter from your GP all that stuff will go if you're working in, in select private providers and you will be treated better so you know if you're having a market system that says you know you go where you're you know where you you want according to what your priorities are that's where you'll end up going and and now it's like dentistry and you can see a private GP now for an opinion you know for fees that are much lower than they were in the past so then what happens is you've got fissures you've got splits you, then as a GP in the NHS you, you someone will come to you and say I've had you know three opinions from 
various providers and I need this, this and this and this, it's my shopping list, but actually I wouldn't do any of those things um, because it's not recommended out of guidelines or not evidence-based. So you've got all that to wind back on and you're trying to offer a good service where you are, you know, you feel as though you're doing your best for the patient. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And as for the weekends, I used to do loads of weekends. I did them during COVID. I did lots of stuff. It is very stressful. It, you know, it is really stressful. I would have, I would very easily take a pay cut for less stress. You know, that, and that's what people have done. You know, they have decided that they are at their max. And I, I completely understand that. I don't blame them. Can you talk us through the the business model, if you like, of, sure. of a GP practice? Because a lot of people don't understand that GPs yeah. are not part of the NHS. It's, it's never been nationalised. These are private uh, businesses. Yeah, well, 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 we, well, we kind of are and we aren't. And that's, that's, well, right. that's the tension. That's the tension. So um, I'm a GP partner. So I am a contract with the NHS and it's a very strict contract. So you can't treat your own patients privately, for example. You've got to do exactly what the health board want you to do. Um, so so I suppose we are, we are, we are indeed, our pensions are all NHS, our staff are all paid on NHS scales. You, you know, there's, there's, we're, we're interwoven, I suppose, with the NHS. If you've got a private GP practice, they don't have to do any of the stuff obviously that's in the NHS contract which is quite strict and, and will tell you what you can and can't do um, and of course there's limits to what we can do and what we can't do in terms of treatments that we offer and stuff it's all kind of NHS based so that means that we have both the benefit of being an independent contractor and we have the problem of being an independent contractor so we have to run it like with our staff the building you know if the building needs painted internally we come in in a shift rota because obviously you can't have patient records left around unattended so we don't the weekend while the painters in you know so there, there's all that kind of stuff that's attached to it and then <coughs> you've got this um, model now it's quite rare in Scotland but it's far more common in England where you have say three or four profit sharing partners who employ lots of people they employ salary doctors they employ nurses they employ physiotherapists and they will do the vast majority of patient care they're not partners so when when our um when our partner um, retired a few years ago we were very clear that we wanted another partner to come in we didn't want to have a salaried doctor because we wanted to be equal we wanted equal decision making also we wanted equal responsibility you share the stresses um of, of being a, a a private company effectively and that has meant that, um, you know, there has been times when, you know, we've had, to, you know, less money and more money, shall we say, if I can put that delicately. So you, you've got all the stuff that goes along with that. If you're in a big, massive um, conglomeration, you might want to be a salary doctor and think you can have a contract where you're working your clear hours, you're negotiating, you're saying, I'll say 12 patients in the morning, 12 patients in the afternoon. I won't do any house calls. I want school holidays off. You could try and negotiate that. I don't have that right. We've got to provide, you know, if, if someone off sick then I'm in covering you know whether or not it's my day to be in if we can't get locums or whatever so I'm really opposed to these big massive models um, of a few GPs earning a huge amount of money compared with everybody else because I think it creates instability and I also think that you may as well run it by you know a, a massive private company like you know Virgin or, or Accenture or whatever why you know what's special about GPs running that because it really does become a management issue as opposed to a clinical issue whereas in a small corner shop you're at the you're at the edge of what you're doing everything you're doing is about the clinical impact of it it's 
much less, um, it's, it's closer to the ground, as it were, um, whereas in these big, massive companies, you know, I, I don't think that there's a strong argument for that being um, for that being owned by, as I say, a small amount of very high earning doctors. I, that's not the model that I would aspire to because of the complex. So, so you're a partner, so you're essentially the you know one of the bosses. This is a, a cooperative almost, right? Yeah. So why have you got such bad working conditions? I mean, why, exactly. why has it gone down the last trip? Exactly, exactly. Why has it? And I kind of think maybe I should have been more angry for longer about this, because you're right, you know, this contract is negotiated every year. In fact, I resigned from the BMA um, some years ago because of numerous issues, but this this would be one of them. Um, you know, and I think Scottish government has made more efforts than the English government to try and come up with a reasonable working solution. But the bottom line is, as a partner, um, and I think there's an element of Stockholm syndrome in there because you've always worked for the NHS. You know, it's, I know my patients, I, I love my job actually. Um, but the problem is the buck does stop with me. So, so if there's a million things still to do, I'm the person that it stops with. So I think in, in general, the NHS has got a very good deal from GPs for a very long time because we have always worked more than our hours. We've always sucked it up because, you know, the, you know, you, the, there was an idea that you were doing a, a yeah, I say good job. The vocational element, you feel yeah. as though you're, you know, your heart's in it, you know, you love it, you feel as though you're doing something for your patients, your personal relationships with people, it's very rewarding. So so you do sort of suck it all up. And, and I also wonder whether part of this is to do with the feminization of the profession as well. I, I do wonder whether women have been less um, you know, more great too grateful, I suppose, for being given a job and getting into medical school and passing all your exams and being passed in the heads too well, and maybe not forceful enough and saying actually this is unsustainable we can't do this and and it's interesting when salaried doctors come in and also when GP services were um the out of hours were kind of that the contract out of hours was taken from GPs and put into the the the, this idea that anyone could bid for it and it was a private thing the costs went up massively because people were now charging what it was worth as opposed to people just doing it because you know that it was your responsibility to do it so as soon as you started to make it paper hour or paper visit and everything the cost just ratcheted up massively i hear a lot of gps complaining about paperwork and you know i, I can understand why i mean yeah. are, are you essentially just complaining about over regulation is that the problem with the nhs they just give you far too many hoops to jump through and, and forms to sign well, you know, like when, when I used to refer a patient, I used to um, dictate something. And now I have to log on. My password's inevitably wrong. I have to click the right box. I have to go to the right place. And someone, some person, some non-clinician quite often will vet my referral and then decide that, you know, my patient doesn't merit being seen. And then I've got to deal with all of that stuff. So it's just layer upon layer. Did your eyebrows raise? I hope they raised because the whole, I mean, it's just unbelievable. A few years ago, I got a fantastic um, letter from a doctor who's now retired and um, explaining to me why he hadn't seen my patient. And it was a, it was a fantastic sort of two page rant saying that my referral hadn't been seen by a doctor. It'd been seen by someone unknown to him who had decided to reject it on no good clinical reasons. And now he was trying to basically mop it up. And again, these are these kind of money saving initiatives these referral management centres that were sold, I think, to the NHS as a way of reducing unnecessary work. But actually, it's so much more complicated than that. I, I mean, I used to be able to phone up and speak to a consultant and say, you know, about your patient, but, you know, what should we do? I'm a bit worried. There was that informality, but now so much, and I'm not saying that can never happen, but now so much of stuff is managed through a, a computer interface that's very, you know, tick this box or don't tick this box. And that depends what pathway you're on. It's, it's dismaying. Yeah, you'd like more autonomy in your job, basically. 
Um, well, I, I, the, the contract is, is restricted. I mean, a classic example is the new GP contract in Scotland a couple of years ago. They said that we, we were going to get more staff, which is great, um, but we couldn't choose the staff and the staff were going to be still employed by the health board. So, you know, right away, you've got a kind of tension between what we want and need and what the health board thinks we want and need. Right. So it's a, it's a private business that's so heavily regulated by the state that it might as well be part of the NHS. It would be much better for many people in many ways, but it'd be far more expensive because if it became the, the case that we negotiated our contracts like consultants do and say, OK, and we're only going to see these patients, this many patients at this clinic, and then there's a cutoff, your waiting list would just go up and up and up. That's what happens in hospitals. You know, they have a they have a clinic and the clinic starts and it stops and then everyone else goes onto a waiting list. Whereas in general practice, our clinic starts and then everyone that says that they need to be seen that day will just keep adding on and adding on and adding on. And, and how did uh, how does the, the money come in, as it were? I, I understand it that you get paid basically, and it might be different in England, but you essentially get paid based on how many people you have on the books, as opposed to how many people you actually see. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so it's not very much. I mean, I can't remember. It's between like sort of sixty and seventy pounds a month, uh, a year, a year for a patient that's on your books. And oh. I think that they can come in as often as they want to. So you've yeah. got lots of patients that hardly come in, and then you've got loads of patients that come in like all the time because they've got loads of stuff that needs to be sorted out. So you get extra money for things like vaccinations or for this thing called chronic disease management, which is a kind of, you know, if you've got heart disease, you're reviewed once a year, your medications looked at all that kind of stuff. So there's all these little bits of pieces of money, you know, cervical screening gets a little bit of money. Um, what else? Um, prescription reviews get a little bit of money. There's lots of little bits of jobs that all get added up. So the practice manager's job, I mean, I think a huge amount of her job is to work out um, all the things that we've done. And a lot of that is in the computer now, and then make sure we've been paid for it and then chase up. I'll tell you a great one. This is a fantastic one from a few years ago. We were paid money. So, you know, it's nuts, but you get paid money for different activities. And one of them was to do, it was to have a palliative care meeting. And I think it was something like every three months. And so we, Julie, so we have meetings where we invite um, the palliative care team, district nurses, health visitors too. And we were having a meeting and we would routinely have done our palliative care work. Then anyway, just reviewing patients, making sure we're doing everything we should be for folk. And the health board refused to give us the money because they said we had our meetings every three calendar months as opposed to every 12 weeks. And they withheld the money. Really? Right. Yeah. So that's how tedious and stupid and pathetic it is. Yeah. So it's massively overregulated. It's nuts. This is a problem, isn't it? It's nuts. People need to be given, you know, maybe the odd target here or there and then left to decide how to go about meeting and them rather than so the terrible micromanagement thing, like that yeah so the target thing is really interesting because i've never come across any sort of really helpful targets in healthcare you know um every time there's a there's a target it's gamed you know there's a side effect yeah. as a consequence from it it's rubbish and and then when you rely on people's professionalism that can really help but there will always be some people that would just if i can be frank take the piss you know so you will find that there are some people who are just not doing what they should do now sometimes that's because people are distressed they've got they've got you know the the resources that they have is not matching the demand on their service and sometimes those people or those practices need a lot of support and but and i think it's good to be transparent and say this is what we're doing and you know you want to be in the pack you don't really want to be an outlier so I think there has been a move towards you know publishing more data and stuff but even then it's really difficult you know you go to meetings and you're told okay this is how many referrals you've made to neurology compared with this practice and that practice I don't know what that means is that good is it bad <laughs> you know so data doesn't really help you you know and, and it's difficult to know what targets you make from that either you know that are, that are helpful 
what what are the stupidest ones in terms of like the the, the little bonuses you get because every now and again you read in the papers that the government is thinking about paying doctors an extra tenner for every smoker they refer to a smoking clinic or things like that I mean, there's mad things. I mean, I think that that contract is still more, I think, at large in England than what there was. But there was a thing about smoking cessation, about obesity recording as well, if you right. not. And I, I thought that was really unethical, to be honest with you, because, you know, when, when patients come in, I think the research says people have got between two and three things that they want to discuss with their doctor. And you've only got, you know, 12 minutes or, or, or however many minutes it is, 10 to 12. And if your patient's just been bereaved or their mum's just been told they've got cancer and like you're only paid if you say, and, and do you want to stop smoking or, you know, are you overweight? Yeah. Have you like, noticed that you're pathetic. overweight? <laughs> Would you like to do something about that? It's pathetic. Yeah, know? it's incredible. But that's what you get with a you know, top down healthcare system where the government's under constant pressure to deal with this, deal with that. It's a bit like with the schools. We're always said, yeah. put this on the curriculum, put this on the curriculum yeah. until it's like, well, when are we going to find time to do any, any work? Um, right. We've heard a lot about the problems doctors face let's talk a bit about the problems patients face yeah. um i was looking at a survey before this is from i think may this year it said that patient satisfaction with gp services has fallen from 68 percent in 2019 to 38 percent now and that when asked what the priorities for the nhs should be this is for the whole nhs yeah the top answer with 48 percent of people was to make it easier to get a gp appointment now you talk about the unintended consequences of targets yeah. my yeah. one of my pet peeves with gps apart from the fact that it seems now impossible to get any non-urgent appointment whatsoever in my yeah. in my surgery is what i call the the eight a, eight a.m racket yeah where yeah. they you ring up for an appointment you're quite happy to take an appointment in the next few days and they lie to you, so they haven't got any. But if you ring at eight o'clock in the morning, we'll maybe squeeze you in. So you ring up eight o'clock in the morning. What happens? It's engaged because everybody else is doing the same thing. Yeah. So eventually, if you're lucky, you will get through some hateful receptionist who will triage you and maybe decide that actually we've got something at 9.30. Can you come in now? Now, my understanding of this was that this at least started off as being a way to game the same day appointments yeah, target. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even though that target doesn't even exist anymore, they've stuck with it because it makes yeah. life easier for them in some way. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, do, I don't know what your individual practice is doing, but yeah, I mean, I think this whole thing started with Blair, you know, this idea that you were going to have, you know, that there was going to be targets and you could always get same day appointments. And then, of course, what happens is the system is gamed. So you can get a same day appointment, but you can't book for one, two or three in advance. Yeah. And it's a capacity. It's and that's terrible, I think. A terrible way to, you know, in primary care, your first contact, you know, <laughs> know with, with some know. health problem is, it involves you basically being lied to straight yeah. away so, so so i am before before i before i try and answer that because i think you've got an extremely good point i have to say our receptionists are amazing and just you know they are just incredible you know they and my, my receptionists in my practice they are they are they know their patients they help people to try and get through they are just fantastic but i completely get where you're coming from you phone up you want an appointment you want to speak to a doctor, you want to see a doctor, and it's not happening. So the fundamental root cause is underinvestment in general practice, so there are not enough appointments compared with demands. So that's the number one thing. But there are, though. They can always squeeze you in the, the, on the day if you ring up 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, well, I don't know what system... my place. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know what system they're using, but I'm sure you're, you know, I'm sure you're right. The, 
So, so people are trying to man, manage this demand in lots of different ways. So you know there's like the e-consult thing, you can fill in a wee email form and then they try and put you to the right person. And I think part of the problem is that they're trying to say, okay, you might not need to see a GP, you can see a nurse, you can see a physiotherapist, you can see a pharmacist, you know, trying the capacity in general practice. They're trying to say, I think, it shouldn't depend on just GPs. So we don't have more GPs, but might have other people that could help. And I think the purpose of this, these kind of and I hesitate to say triage system, but um, it's almost a sorting system when you phone up the practices to try and put the people into the GP that can only see the GP and try and deal with people that can be seen by pharmacists elsewhere. Yeah. Some sense in that. Not a lot of evidence, really, that it works terrifically well, um, to be honest. Um, the, the evidence in triage systems in general is fairly poor. You know, some practices think they're fantastic and it works. Other practices have seen massive increases in, in workloads when they've tried to put in a kind of e-triage system or whatever. So I don't, I don't think that works. So I, I don't know, Christopher, I don't know what the right answer is. Certainly, I don't think I have it in my practice. I, you know, every day we could, you know, I could do with three times as many appointments. You know, I, there was some points during the pandemic that I just came home and I was just about in tears because I'm a grown woman, I'm meant to be, you know, like mature. But it's just really difficult because if you're not giving the kind of care that you want to give the care to your patients, because why would you not want to do that? You're, you're in this because you want to try and do something useful and you can't do it. You know, you can't you can't magic up more of yourself, you you know, and you want to go home at some point. It, it's really hard. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. I have no good answers. I have no good ideas. I've got an idea for you. I'll give you in a second. Just after we talk about Rishi Sunak's idea of fining people £10 if they don't turn up to GP appointments. Yeah. I gather about 5% of GP appointments, people don't turn up. I have heard from quite a few GPs that they quite like it when people don't turn up because it gives them a chance to, to catch up. Yeah, and get yeah. things back on schedule. But you're yeah. not a fan of this idea from Rishi, I don't think. It's, it's just stupid. But I mean, from a purely economic point of view, how much money would it take you to recoup that money? You know, because then invariably people are, you know, the people that don't turn up. I mean, sometimes it's just a confusion or a muddle. Sometimes people have genuinely forgotten. But often it's because people don't have phone credit the people I mean there's been a big study done looking at people that don't turn up to hospital appointments and these are the people that die younger and have the most diseases you know so there are there are reasons why people don't go to the hospital for their appointments and it's unlikely to be solved by a, a, a fine effectively you know there, there's no evidence at all it's going to make what are the main kind of reasons that they they just are too ill to come in or they forget or what too well quite often well nobody really knows actually I think I think that's the other problem but I think sometimes people don't well, there's, there's lots of reasons. Inability to get there, inability to phone and cancel, inability to actually manage to get there, transport, understanding the letter, understanding where they're to go to, at what time to do what, all that kind of stuff. But I don't think people really know why. I have to say with the phone triage system, there's very few people don't turn up because you phone them. And then if they don't answer, you phone again, you leave a message and eventually you play ping pong and, and you do manage to speak. So that does take away a huge amount of it. Um, I mean, the hospital clinics that I'm aware of, they often routinely overbook because they expect, you know, two or three people not to turn up. So yes, by the airlines. Turn. Yeah. So if everyone turns up, it's a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't think the Richie's out. I mean, it's and it keeps it's a zombie policy. You know, every like in a couple of years, somebody comes up with this and, you know, some people think it's great. And right. uh, it's just it's pointless. It's stupid. What about what about what I prefer to do, which is charge everybody 20 quid, regardless of whether they turn up or not, just as a, as a across the board, you pay 20 quid to see your GP. That would raise five or six billion pounds. We can we can pay people more benefits or lower taxes and things if you want to try and make that progressive or what have you. But make that the norm. And not only do you deal with the people who don't turn up, but you 
put off the malingerers, which let's face it, the whole triage thing and the receptionist is all there to try and put off people who shouldn't be going into the GPs and just want a, a nice chat or get some free paracetamol anyway. So charge people 20 quid. If you if it's not worth 20 quid, then you're not very ill. No, I don't I don't I don't buy that to be honest with you. So first of all, 20 quid is nothing to Richie Sunak. That's like, you know, small change, you know, fluff in the bottom of your pocket. But but 20 quid to a lot of my patients would be, you know, that's this week's shopping and their bus fares. Do you know what I mean? So 20 pounds in Sweden. Well, in Sweden is a lot of countries, but do New Zealand. No problem. You pay you thirty quid. You go and see see a GP straight away. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. If you're ill, you'll go. You'll you'll go see a GP. Well, Sweden, Sweden has a very different um, gradient of inequality compared with the UK. So I, you know, I, I don't think so. The other, the other, well, the the, the other thing is just unintended consequences. So you know the study that was done about nursery kids, um, and they said, okay, if you're late coming up to pick up your child, we'll fine you ten pounds. You know about this. Yeah. And what happened was, instead of people being less late to pick up their kids, they were more late because they thought it was only £10 yeah. to have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I forgot about work. So, yeah, so, so I don't really think it would work. And the other thing is that some people need a shed load of healthcare. You know, they need massive amounts of healthcare. And some of that is preventative, you know. The people yeah. that you categorise as malingers, I'm not, I don't think I would categorise anyone like that. I certainly think there are people who have had very bad hands in life and who find it much harder than other people to get on their feet and to manage. I certainly think there's a lot of loneliness out there. But, you know, there are lots of organisations that try and help and try and make sure that, you know, GP services are used appropriately and there are places you know and again you know we, we used to have a really strong a well-organized and, and centrally funded um suite of community stuff you know community centers stuffing on their classes groups exercise classes things that would really keep people going um that were very distinct from um healthcare services you know in control the community was in control of it the community um worked out what they needed and organized around that and, and what we've had over the last couple of years is what i see as a bit of a disaster this um, very um, professionalized social prescribing model where doctors are the gateway drug or the doctors are the gateway they, they um, prescribe social interventions for you and they prescribe um, you know gardening or working in an allotment and all this kind of stuff and I think that's just terrible because these are community interventions that should be owned and run by the community and should have nothing to do with doctors and doctors should take their hands off them and let people themselves own and run them but the problem is that so many of these community resources have been stripped back so there isn't the same I mean and social care you know social workers you know who do an amazing job on practically thin air you know they used to be able to come in and help people you know get, get back on their feet support people that were struggling and they just are unable to do that now except if there's a you know people that are at really high risk which of course has an impact in general practice because these people have needs that are being met un unmet elsewhere we're out of time, I'm afraid. Margaret, I have a feeling if we kept chatting for long enough, we could find a lot of common ground, but we haven't got time. It's only a half-hour programme. Thanks very much for, for joining me. It's been great chatting. Thank you at home for watching. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I think I'm on holiday, but I uh, I think I can do one in two weeks anyway. Uh, you take care until then. Thank you, particularly IEA donors. If you want to give us money, iea.org.uk slash donate or patreon.com slash iea London. See you again next time. Cheers. Goodbye. <laughs>